0: This morning, we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to pick up at uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 39. We're going to be talking about this idea of what if God asks you to do something that you don't understand. And as we look at this familiar passage, you're going to see that that's the exact thing that he did uh, for Mary in particular. And so if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 39, and this is what the Scripture tells us. and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy, as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for giving us the opportunity to look at Your Word together this morning, We're just so grateful on this Christmas Eve to be able to think about these things and to look at what your word reveals to us. Lord, we're just amazed at the things that we get to observe in a passage like this. And it forces us to wrestle with what we would do if you asked us to do something that we didn't understand. And that's something that you definitely do ask us to do. There are lots of things that we experience in this world that we don't understand. And Lord, you want us to respond in faith to your to your requests, and to your demands on our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that we would do so, and we're grateful for those who came before us who give us an example like this of what it means to have sincere, genuine faith, a faith that trusts you in the midst of unfamiliar things. So we pray that, we pray that you prepare our hearts to understand these things as we look at this portion of your word together today. And, Lord, we thank you for the privilege to be able to do so together. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So a while back, I I was uh, was actually having a conversation with a group of teens from our church, and this was taking place right in the back of our church here, and I asked them a question, and I don't remember exactly what led up to this question, but I remember the question itself, and I just asked that group of of, uh, teens, I said, how old do you think a person needs to be before they can make a meaningful contribution in this world? So that was my question for them. How old do you think a person needs to be before they can make a meaningful contribution in this world? And I remember the conversation or the answers that I got from them at first were like mostly silly answers, right? Like they weren't real answers at first. But then once they got that out of their system uh, and I pressed them for a real answer, some indicated, and there, there ended up being kind of like a, a common thought on this, they indicated that they thought you had to be like a little bit older, and I said, all right, well, like, what do you mean by a little bit older? And the general consensus was that to make a meaningful contribution in this world, you needed to be at least 35 years of age. (laughs) So I don't know what you think about that number. Now, For someone to run for president, they have to be 35 years of age. So I don't know if you know that about our Constitution. You have to be 35. But that was their general consensus. They thought for a person to be able to make a meaningful contribution in this world, you have to be maybe like at least 35 years of age. And as we talked about this, I thought it was interesting, by the way, that that was their perspective. But I pointed out to them this portion of Scripture. And this portion of Scripture references Mary. And if you know anything about Mary and the context that she was in at the time this was taking place... Mary was a young teenager as she's saying these things. I think sometimes we look at this portion of Scripture and we think of somebody that's just uh, at a very serious and mature season of life, Um, two seasons of life I haven't quite reached, but I'm almost there, almost there. But sometimes you think of this and you think of somebody that's just very serious and just just well-seasoned in years. But then when you look at the, the context of the Scripture itself, it actually reveals to us that Mary was very young. She was very young, young person when she experienced the events that were taking place here in Luke chapter 1. And it's interesting because Mary was being asked of the Lord to trust Him for things that she had never seen. She was asked of the Lord to trust Him for things that initially would certainly seem confusing. Now, this is an interesting thing for us to wrestle with as well when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, a portion of Scripture that's commonly referred to during the Christmas season. But one of the things that we could wrestle with when we look at something like this is, what should we do when God asks something of us that we find confusing? Because one of the things I can tell you, the longer I've walked with the Lord, the more serious I've become about my faith in Him, the more He's asked me things like that or asked me to do things like that. The more he's presented things before me that initially struck me as confusing. Or if I wouldn't use the word confusing, maybe I'd use a different word. Maybe a word like stretching, or just difficult to understand, or one of those things that when you go through that stretch of time, you think to yourself, all right, this is different. I haven't experienced something like this before. I wonder how long it will last, or I wonder what God's trying to teach me in the midst of this experience. There's a lot of ways we could actually respond to moments when God asks us something that we don't exactly understand or we find confusing when we're in the midst of it. Lots of ways we can respond, but I'm always blessed when I read Mary's response. I love when I read her response in this portion of Scripture. When you look at the verses prior to where we read today, when you look at the things that we did read together, she basically says that she has peace about accepting the Lord's will. She has peace about accepting His will. She trusts Him with her life She trusts him to work for her best interests. She just trusts him for the things that she can't understand. And as she continued to ponder God's work in her life, and as she continued to praise him for what he was up to, Scripture tells us that she went to visit her relative Elizabeth. Now, I just read these verses, but I'm going to reread a a portion of this here. When you look at verse 39 of Luke chapter 1, It sets up this context here as Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. And it says, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste. So she's hurrying into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth was Zechariah's wife. It says, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. So Elizabeth was expecting a child as well. The baby leaps in her womb. And it says, and Elizabeth was filled... from the Lord. All sorts of beautiful things in this interchange between Mary and Elizabeth as this moment was taking place. Now, at the time of Mary's visit, the Scripture also tells us here that Elizabeth was also carrying a child. If you know because you've already read these portions of Scripture or you're familiar with the Gospels, the child that Elizabeth was carrying was also someone of great historical significance and someone who was also prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures that was going to come as a forerunner to the Messiah. Elizabeth was carrying in her womb the person we commonly called John the Baptist. And so here these ladies are. They're greeting each other. These are both women that the Lord had selected for very important tasks. And could you imagine, like, do you ever have one of those moments where you run into someone that you grew up with and you're like, you know what, they actually did something good with their, with their life. And you're kind of proud of them. And then they're looking at you and they're like, huh. You know, you actually did something good with your life. But then you remember when you were both bozos when you were kids, and you think, I don't think anyone was thinking we were going to do anything good with our life at that season of life. And do you suppose Mary and Elizabeth, even though they were probably on the younger side, looked at each other and just said, did you ever think God would select us for something like this? Doesn't Like, why us? Why is God doing something like this through us? And how happy they were to see each other. And how excited they were to be, and just amazed to be selected for these tasks that the Lord had selected them for. But it tells us here, and this is amazing, because you see the supernatural taking place here. When Mary greets Elizabeth, there's a, there's a consciousness, even within the baby that, that Elizabeth is carrying, that the Savior of the world is nearby. As Mary, as Mary speaks here, there's an awareness in John the Baptist, that the one that the one carrying the Savior of the, the world has just spoken, and it says here that John the Baptist jumps in her womb, and what does Elizabeth do? She loudly testifies her praise to God who is doing miraculous things in her midst. Just a beautiful thing to, to see and experience. Are are you one of those people when you get excited? Do you get a little loud? You know, it's kind of funny. My side of the family, that's how we are. We're the loud side. Andrea's side of the family, they're the polite side. They're the quiet side. And I even said to her yesterday, because we were just laughing at how, how different our families are and how different our personalities are in some respects. I'm like, doesn't it ever crack you up that we ended up together and we just see things so differently? And you look at this here. I get the impression that Mary was kind of the quiet one. But here it tells us Elizabeth, her relative... Elizabeth was the loud one. You have a loud friend. Some of you are the loud friend, right? Some of you are the Elizabeth in this story. Some of you are the Mary in this story. But it says, when Mary greets Elizabeth, you know, John the Baptist, he jumps. Elizabeth, she's screaming her head off. They're all excited. But notice Elizabeth's words in verse 43. You probably already caught it, but I do want to highlight it. There she says this. In verse 43, she says, and why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What a, what a beautiful statement she's making here, right? Now, in many, in many respects, when you look at what Elizabeth is saying here, I think she's expressing one of the healthiest philosophies a person from any era could live by. And what I mean by that is this. She recognized that what she was experiencing, this is not just a natural occurrence There's more to what's going on behind the scenes. She realizes that she was experiencing something that was evidence of the hand of God at work around her. Everything she's seeing, this whole experience, what she's personally going through, what her relative Mary is going through, she realizes the hand of God is at work around her. She realizes that the presence of God is in her midst. I mean, just think about this, too, if you want to get a little bit deeper theologically. Scripture says that all creation was created through Jesus Christ, that he spoke creation into existence, and that he sustains creation by his powerful word. So the one who spoke creation into existence and sustains creation by his powerful word had taken the form of an infant and was right there in the room with them. not an amazing thing to think about? And Elizabeth is pondering this and she's thinking about this. And again, she's recognizing this is not, this is there's more to this than just a natural occurrence. This is a supernatural miracle that's taking place right around us. And she's wondering, she, she's like, Why is this granted to me? What does she mean by that? She's saying, Why is this granted to me? She's wondering, why is the Lord allowing me, of all people, why is the Lord allowing me to experience something so uniquely wonderful? why is he letting me experience this? It's just so unique. It's so wonderful. Why do I get to be the one experiencing this? Now, imagine for a moment, if that was the guiding perspective that each of us carried throughout the course of our lives, that we just approached life with that kind of amazement and that kind of wonder, just wondering, you know, why is the Lord allowing me to experience this? You know, it's a perspective that notices Just the evidence of God's undeserved favor all around us, all around us, a perspective that causes us to say, you know, very similar things to what Elizabeth is saying here. Essentially, why is God so good to me? You know, why does he show his grace to me? Do you ever ask that question, why is God so good to me? I I think about that often. Because if we're really honest, if we really dig down, you know, we think about, like for a moment, you could think for yourself and say, all right, of, of all the people on the earth for God to notice, why is he choosing to notice me right now? Why would he even care? Why is he so good to me? And yet that's the, that's the perspective that the Lord invites us to have because he's doing that for each of us. He's not just noticing humanity collectively. He's also noti- noticing you and I individually and saying and doing miraculous things that Make a huge difference, not only in our present life, but in our life eternally. And I think when you experience most people, and you probably have some people in your life that, that kind of go about life like this, I think it's very natural and common for most people to just kind of focus on the negative in life. There's someone that, that lives near our family, and uh, we often joke a little bit about the fact that we know that whatever he says, it doesn't matter. it doesn't matter what the subject is, There's going to be some negative spin that he puts on it. Doesn't matter. All right, the Eagles are 10 and 4. We should be happy, right? I look at Justin, you know, his Lions are 10 and 4. Lions fans are pretty happy, aren't they, right? Eagles fans were 10 and 4. i like, I remember when we were 10 and 1, 10 and 2, you know. We look at that, and it's easy to put a negative spin. I think it's natural to just kind of focus on the negative in life. And I think that's what most people around us are doing, focusing on the negative. And the more we do that, if that's the perspective we choose to adopt, and that, by the way, is a choice, the more we can start becoming kind of stuck in that line of thinking. And again, there are some people in this world who I think just seem to exclusively focus on the downside of every situation. But in this moment, you see a very different perspective, don't you? You have Elizabeth genuinely wondering, why God would be so abundantly good to someone like her. Like, why does he even notice me? Why is he letting me get to see and experience these things? These are long foretold prophecies that are being fulfilled right in front of me, and I get to even be part of the fulfillment of these things. i read about these things since I was a kid. I, could you imagine reading about these things since you were a kid and then discovering that you were part of the story? These are the type of things that Elizabeth and Mary... We're discovering in this moment, and and again, Elizabeth is just wondering, why is God showing so much grace to me? Is amazing. Then you have a response from Mary in the midst of that. When you look at verse 46, it says this, and Mary said, so Elizabeth speaks up, then Mary, it says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So that's her response. She looks at this, she says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You know, the Christmas time is a season that's celebrated by different people for different reasons. Different people have different reasons uh, and different ways that they celebrate the, uh, the Christmas season. I think some celebrate this season with a more outward focus and others adopt more of an inward focus. I think some are at a season of life where they find joy primarily in giving, and then others find this season to be a, a, a time where they find joy primarily in what they've received. And when we look at the joyful thankfulness that's at work in Mary's words in these verses, what we see her doing is expressing thanks for what she's received. She's thankful for what she's received, and she wants to express that, As just with an attitude of praise toward the Lord who has blessed her. And she's very specific here about what she's thankful for. She makes it clear that she's thankful for the Lord himself, and she's thankful for his presence in her life. The fact that he would be present with her. And she even phrases it this way. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now think about that phrase for a second. My soul magnifies the Lord. The Lord. That means that she was. Let me just think of the word magnify. When you're thinking of magnifying something, you're thinking about noticing something in particular, or something that maybe other people are missing, but to you it's big. You see it big. And what she was doing was she was exalting the Lord. She was praising the Lord from the depths of her being. She said, My soul magnifies the Lord. I see the Lord. I see him clearly. I see what he's doing. My soul is rejoicing over what I'm seeing. She says specifically, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. What was she acknowledging as she said that? She's acknowledging that salvation is from God. She wasn't dwelling on hardship. In that moment, she wasn't dwelling on ridicule. She wasn't uh, dwelling on the potential shame that she as uh as a young, unwed mother in the midst of her culture, might be experiencing from others. All she was doing was rejoicing in the fact that that she was noticed by the God who saves. And my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's what she was saying. And she reminds us that not only does the Lord save But he also lifts up the very people that this world seeks to kind of hold down. Because you look at her context, she was a a woman, she was a young woman. And in her context, women were not typically esteemed. It was actually culturally acceptable to treat women in many respects like property in that era. She was young. She was expecting She wasn't wealthy, nor was she from a wealthy family. She wasn't from a prominent place. You know, people would look at where she was from, and they'd be like, can anything or anyone good come from there? And yet, what does Scripture tell us? God looked at her humble estate. He looked at Mary in the the midst of her humility, and he did something in her life, specifically allowing her to be the one who gave birth to the Messiah, that when God took on flesh, he allowed Mary to be the one to give him birth And she said, God's doing amazing things, and here's the thing. She's not trying to take any credit for herself, but she realizes, you know what? Because of the miraculous things that God's doing in my life, all generations are going to look back at me and say, that was one blessed woman. She was blessed of God. God did amazing things in her life. She recognized it. She's looking forward just through the the centuries to come, and she realizes people are going to look back at this time and say, I was a blessed person. But guess what? Even in the midst of that, did Mary have an easy earthly life? The things that the Lord allowed her to experience even during this season, were any of these things easy? They were joyful, but they weren't easy. And when you look at some of the things that she had to endure going forward, think about all the things she had to see with her eyes. You know, when you get to the period of time when when Christ is crucified, where's Joseph at that point? Most people believe at that point, Joseph was very likely deceased. So Joseph didn't even live very long into their marriage. Joseph, at this point, is deceased. And then Mary witnesses with her own eyes Jesus Christ, the one she's given birth to, God who took on flesh and was born through her, she witnesses with her own eyes her son tortured and killed. And he wasn't the only one of her children that was tortured and killed. You know, look at what what we learn of of, uh, James. You know, her son James was known to be just a a man with with great wisdom. He came to faith in the Lord after Christ's resurrection. And James was executed for his faith as well. And Jesus, during the time of his crucifixion, looks at Mary, and he also looks at the apostle John, and he says, John, this this is your mother now. Treat her like your mother. And he looks at his mother, he's like, Mother, treat him like your son. Treat him like your son now. And John then took care of Mary for the rest of her life, And you look at those things and you realize Mary wasn't given an easy life. None of the things that the Lord asked her to do were easy things to do. And I think in in many respects, she understood that. She understood that she had a mission. She understood that there are things that the Lord was calling her to do. But at the same time, she, she just joyfully acknowledges with the kind of faith that sometimes is easier to have on the young side of life. She testifies that the Lord had done great things for her. She calls his name holy. She testifies that his mercy is for all who who revere him from generation to generation. And I look at that, and and she's just so thankful for the undeserved favor of God. She's so thankful for the fact that God is not That God doesn't look at us and desire to to punish us in accordance to what we deserve. The reason Christ came to this earth was to take our punishment upon Himself so that we could be rescued, redeemed, and made new, completely forgiven of our sin in His presence, that we could become, instead of objects of the wrath of God, objects of God's mercy. And it makes me beg the question, because Mary's thanking the Lord for His mercy, but it makes me think, where would we be without the mercy of God? Without the mercy of God, where would we be? I love what Scripture tells us elsewhere about the mercy of God. In Hebrews 4, 16, it says, "...let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace." So it's saying, we can come to the Lord with confidence in prayer. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Grace, why can we come to the Lord with confidence? Why can we draw near to Him with confidence that He's going to welcome us into His presence? It's because of mercy. It says that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in, the t- in time of need. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we're given the righteousness of Christ. We become objects of mercy, and through that mercy, we can come before the throne of God and we receive additional mercy. We receive additional grace as we do so. But Scripture says, as objects of mercy, we have the privilege to come close to God. That we don't have to think of God at a distance, but that we could recognize, no, we're actually noticed by Him, and He's nearby. I also love what it tells us in 1 Peter 1:13. 1 there it says this, speaking of the mercy of God, it says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." Not a beautiful thing, According to his great mercy, the fact that we deserve punishment from God, and yet he chose to show us mercy instead. And as a result, what do we have? A living hope that through Jesus Christ who, raised from, who, who rose from death, that that victory is also shared with us and that we'll rise from death as well through Jesus. So you look at the things that Mary was acknowledging that the Lord had done in her life and through her life, and, it's, and she ponders these things and she's grateful and she's amazed at all of this. And I wonder if we were to flip this around and just ask this in a very personal way, how would you answer the question, what has the Lord done for me? Because again, in the midst of all this, Mary's being asked to trust the Lord for things that are unfamiliar to her, things that she hasn't directly seen the Lord do before, but she's read about in His Word that He's done for other people, and now He's doing these miraculous things for her. And it begs the question, I think, to some degree, what's the Lord done for us? What's the Lord done for you? Do you ever ask that question? What's the Lord done for me? Then you look at what Scripture reveals, and you look at the testimony of our own lives and the the hand of God that's clearly been upon our lives. We can testify to the fact that the Lord's given us life. He's given us purpose. If we're following Him, He gives us a sense of mission. He gives us confidence in Him. Not confidence in ourselves, not confidence in our own ability or our own intellect. Confidence in Him. What else has He done for us? What else has He done for you, specifically? Well, He's taught us to hold on to the things of this world very loosely because He allows us to start seeing things from an eternal perspective. He changes the way we look at things, doesn't He? And as a result, we hold on to the things of this world rather loosely. He's taught us to welcome His love. And then as recipients of His love, what does He teach us to do? Extend that love toward others particularly toward those in our life that we feel, yeah, they don't deserve it. And then when we look at what Scripture says, it says, oh wait, I didn't deserve it. And then in addition to all of that, we see what Scripture reveals to us about the fact that God has a plan to rescue and redeem this lost and confused world. So what has the Lord done for us? He rescues us in every direction. He restores relationships. He gives us hope beyond our current circumstances. And He does this all throughout history to those and for those who trust in Him. And again, Mary was looking at these things, and she was thinking about these things, and she just, she just has a, a way that she synthesizes some of these thoughts related to the Lord's hand in history. But in Luke 1, verse 51, she says, "...He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things." And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. See this concept of his mercy come up again in her words. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Then it says, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. But she's thinking about all these things. And she's just amazed at what God's done in her life, but also what he's done historically. And again, from the earliest days of Israel... You go back to the ancient prophecies that the people of Israel were given. God had promised them that the Savior of the world would come not only to them, but through them. And in every generation, we look at this sort of thing, and we realize that there are those who are living like they are the Savior of the world. And yet, what were the people of Israel told? The Savior's going to come to you and through you, and Mary's recognizing that's taking place. But what do people do in every generation? They act. There are people that, that assume a role of leadership where they act like they're the Savior of the world. They crave worship. They, they crave praise. They'll do anything to receive it. It's interesting, when you look in the book of Acts, it tells us about Herod Agrippa. It tells us about some of the ways that, that he thought of himself in the midst of his generation. And In Acts chapter 12, Uh, Verse 21 and following, it says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, and he took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. It says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And so you see how the Lord handles the proud those that think that they're the big deal. And then you look at Mary, let me go back to Luke chapter 1. What does Mary say? The Lord has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's exalted those of humble estate. And it's fascinating when you look at all of this because as Mary was thinking about these things, as she was speaking about these things, as she was just testifying to the fact that the Lord historically had had treated His people so well, She was conscious of the the blessings that she had received. She was acknowledging the fact that that ultimately what she was carrying in her womb was the long-promised offspring of Abraham, that God had long ago promised would come uh, through Abraham's line. And it's God's desire that all people trust in Jesus Christ and receive him as Savior and Lord. And Mary was testifying to this, and you and I have the privilege to be people who hear about this and who meditate on these things and think about these things. And it's kind of interesting to think about the ways in which the Lord makes sure that that message gets around, that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. Think about the ways that the Lord is actually facilitating that message to be shared. You have Jesus coming to this earth, taking on flesh, being born as an infant. He lived, he died, he rose again, and he promises that he's going to return. So it's interesting, just like 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 Mary experienced during her early life as she was awaiting the the arrival of the Messiah. Do you ever think about the fact that we're in the same boat? We're awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. We're awaiting for His return. He's inspired His Word to be written, and it was written in the language of the common man so that regular people like us can understand it. And He's made us able to understand His Word through the power of His Holy Spirit, And then he gives us the ability to communicate it to others. And then you have means like printed paper and satellites and the internet sharing his gospel all throughout the world. And the Lord continues working out his plan to redeem humanity, even though most of the people of this world sneer at him and thumb their noses at him. And yet when you look at what Scripture reveals, we're shown that his love and his mercy and his grace continue to be extended toward humanity because these are perfections of his nature that are not dependent on human response. The Lord's helping us recognize our need for him. The Lord's helping us to understand our need for Jesus Christ, the Savior. You ever hear, um, I'm certain that you've heard this, so I'll phrase that differently. The song Amazing Grace. You've heard that probably many times throughout the course of your life. I don't know if you ever heard the story of the individual that wrote that song. It was a man named John Newton. And John Newton was somebody who had spent much of his early life as a rough, kind of vulgar, not kind of vulgar, quite vulgar, uh, sailor with an appetite for rotten living. Uh, That's according to his own testimony. For much of his early life, he just kind of hated life, and he felt like life hated him. For a while, he was actually captain of a slave ship. And so he was involved in enslaving other people and treating other people miserably. And that weighed on his conscience. And somewhere during his adult life, there are a couple things that got his attention. One, one thing that got his attention, someone actually placed in his hand uh, a copy of, the, uh, of uh, Thomas Akempis's book, The Imitation of Christ. And so he read that. But he also remembered some of the things that he had learned from his mother, And uh, those of you that are raising children, those of you who are mothers, those of you who are grandmothers, don't ever discount the influence that you're having on the generation that comes after you, because uh, a lot of times the seeds that you sow in their life show up a few decades after those seeds get planted. So sometimes we want to see an immediate result, but sometimes it takes a little while. And John Newton was one of those guys who after reading Thomas Akempis' book, started thinking about things that he'd actually heard from his mother first. And he thought about the fact that, you know, I really had a good mother. When he, when he was young, his mother told him about Jesus Christ. His mother told him about salvation being found in no other name than the name of Jesus. But it wasn't, until, uh, it wasn't until Newton was an adult that he came to faith in Christ. And he was one of those people that when he did something, he did it all the way he's like, all right, you know, I've lived my life in a pretty rotten way. I've treated other people in a pretty rotten way. Uh, I don't have a lot of time left. I'm going to make good use of this time. And so once he got saved, he decided, I'm just going to go all over England sharing my faith. To anyone who would listen, I'm just going to share my faith. And if they think I'm a fool, I'll let them think I'm a fool. I think worse things about myself than they do. So that's fine. He's like, but I'm just going to share my faith. So he did that. And he started getting opportunities after opportunities to to preach and speak, and that became very much part of his life later in life uh, as he served in a ministry role. And when he was well past retirement age, he still had a strong desire to to preach from the pulpit, to to share the Word of God, but he realized that for him to be able to stand in the pulpit, he was going to need an assistant. And so he, he actually had an assistant who would help him stand in the pulpit on Sundays, And he was at a stage of life where he was nearly blind, and his voice had gotten very weak, so he would mainly speak in whispers. But again, his thought was, I don't want there to be anything that keeps me from preaching the message of the gospel while I still have breath. While I still have breath, I know that there's somebody who still needs to hear that Christ will rescue and redeem their life, just like he rescued and redeemed mine. So he thought, if the Lord gives me breath, I'm still going to preach, even though I can't hardly see and everything coming out of my mouth is barely a whisper. And one particular Sunday, and that assistant is kind of holding him in place while he's preaching, but one particular Sunday while he was delivering his message, he repeated the sentence. He said, Jesus Christ is precious. So he said that initially, but then he repeated it. He said it again, Jesus Christ is precious. And again, think of his background, think of his life, think of the emotions that must have come with those words as he would testify to that. Jesus Christ is precious, and the guy who was assisting him He was trying to do him a favor, and he thought he was embarrassing himself a little bit. He said, you've already said that twice. He said, you already said that twice. Kind of like, move on. You've already told them Jesus Christ is precious. You told them that two times. And apparently, Newton got a little irritated with his assistant in that moment. He said, loudly, he said, yes, I have said it twice. And I'm going to say it again. Jesus Christ is... Is precious. And it was the loudest part of his message that day. And you look at that and you think of Newton's life and you think, boy, the Lord sure rescued him out of a mess and gave him a powerful testimony that we have the opportunity to think about now. Then you look at Mary and you think, boy, the world would not have assumed that she would be the one that the Lord would do miraculous things through as he brought his Messiah into this world and that she would have the opportunity to testify to the goodness of God. And then you look at you and and me and you think, you know what? There have been things already that the Lord's asked us to do that we did not understand. We didn't see the long-term significance of them. We didn't realize that there was benefit in just listening to His voice and trusting Him in the midst of the moment. And I look at that and I think, you know what? Even when God asks us to do things, we don't understand, just as He asked Newton, just as He asked Mary, we also have the privilege of rejoicing in God, our Savior, the one who grants us his grace as he does great things for us and this world. And we could look at that and say, you know what, Lord, I don't know why you're so good to me. I don't know why you've given me hope beyond my current circumstances. I don't know why you've chosen to rescue me out of the mess that I, that I was in, but I do know this, I'm thankful. And for as long as you give me breath... I'm going to make sure people understand that I'm grateful for the God who chose to notice me and bless me and rescue me through his son and extend to me mercy when I deserve condemnation. And in the midst of this season, you and I have the opportunity to celebrate so many fun things and so many wonderful things. But I'd encourage us to let it be the testimony that comes from our lips as well. Jesus Christ is precious, we could be grateful for him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at the testimony that we see from Elizabeth's lips and Mary's lips, and even to read about someone like Newton and the testimony that he gave to your goodness, because Lord, we resonate with so much of it. If we really look closely at the life that you've blessed us with, we can't deny it. You've blessed us in so many ways. You've chosen to notice us, even though in the world's eyes, we're nothing. And Lord, it's so wonderful to be able to think that you're our God who doesn't just look at the mass of humanity and say, yeah, there's just a a whole clump of individuals with all kinds of needs, you look at us as as individuals, you look at us as people, you look at us as people who you're inviting to have a deep and personal abiding relationship with you. That just like Mary testified that we could be people who have souls that magnify you, that we notice you. From the depth of of, of our innermost parts, that we would notice you And that we would care about who you are and what you do. Lord, we're grateful for these things and for these reminders from your word. We're grateful even when you stretch us and you allow things to come into our lives that for a season seem like a trial or seem like a test. And then we look back at it over time and we realize those were the very things that you put in our life or that you allowed to come into our life, however it works that were the things that were designed to point us directly toward you. So, Lord, we're just so thankful for the kind of testimony that we could read in this portion of Scripture today. And we pray that it would be the kind of testimony that our lips give as well, that we would praise you, Father, for the mercy that you've shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we find salvation, through whom we find redemption, through whom we experience the forgiveness of our sins, Father, we're grateful for this all, and we're grateful for your presence with us right now. And as we go about life, we pray that we would be people who look at these things and just say, you know what, Lord, there are all sorts of things in this world that I could notice that are down, or there's all sorts of things in this world that I could fixate on and think about from a negative perspective. But when I step back and look at this, I'm amazed that I worship a God who notices me and would step into my context and do something about the situation that I'm in. So Lord, thank you for all these things. Thank you for these reminders from your word. And thank you for the testimonies that we have the privilege to reflect upon today. We praise you for all of these things through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.